The Apostle Paul, <clears throat> being the master teacher that he was, one of the tools that he often employed in teaching and writing his letters was the use of questions. And for instance, in the, in the book of Romans, in chapter 2 of Romans, there, he asks seven questions. And in chapter 3, he asks 15 questions. In chapter 4, five questions. In chapter 6, seven questions. In chapter 7, five questions. And in chapter 8, he asks eight questions. Adding that up, in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul asked 47 questions. So he was making use of questions in order to teach doctrine and to teach the truth and to elaborate on the meaning of the gospel of Christ and what it means to the believer. Now, if you were to liken the Bible to uh, terrain and you followed the Bible from its beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation, as you traveled the terrain of the Bible, you would come to deep valleys of hardship and affliction. 400 years in bondage in Egypt would be considered a valley for the people of, of Israel. And then the great exodus out of Israel would be considered rising up out of that valley onto a mountaintop. But as you work through the Bible, there are whole ranges, like the Cascade Range or the Rocky Range, clear up into the Canadian Rockies. There are ranges in the Bible, and in, amidst them, there are mountain peaks. And there are chapters in the Bible that are uh, mountain peaks that reach clear up into the clouds and disappear because of the richness and wealth of those chapters. And one of those chapters that many believe is maybe one of the highest mountain peaks in all the Bible is the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. And through these 30 years here, we have come back to the eighth chapter of Romans over and over. Sometimes we will look at a large piece of it Sometimes we will only barely go up the, the foothill and don't really climb very high. Other times we've tried to reach the summit of the book of Romans, which is chapter 8. And in this great chapter, there is a case in point where the Apostle Paul employs questions. And so what this is today, I've entitled the message, Q&A time before coming to the Lord's table. Today we're going to celebrate communion together and take the bread and take the cup in remembrance of him. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So today as we come to these verses in Romans chapter 8, we're only going to be looking at verses 31 through verse 34. And so I'd like you to follow along with me as I read those four verses and then we will drill down in them somewhat. In verse 31, the apostle begins his questioning, and watch how many question marks appear in these four verses. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. As I pondered this section of four verses, and thinking about it, of course, in its overall context, I just wanted to bring some thoughts to you this morning that will be simple and have clarity, and they will be personally engaging to each one of us, because these are all things that we struggle with. And, And as I elaborate a little bit on this passage, I want so much to honor the Lord, but I've, I, I've put this in a different form than I ever have before as I meditated on this passage. And so what I want to do is I want to point out uh, under four headings the richness of this passage and how important it is for each of us as believers in a world like we live in with the experience that we have and the ups and downs and battles that we all fight and the struggles that we have to overcome sin and to overcome doubts and overcome discouragement, I want us to get the, get the most out of these questions and the answers that the Apostle Paul uh, provided as the Spirit of God led him. So the first thing I want you to see, number one, is this. Remember this, no enemy can successfully come against us. Why is that? Because the omnipotence of God protects the believer. No enemy can successfully, I did not say no enemy can come against us, I said no enemy can successfully come against us. And why is that? because God has promised to protect his child. And sometimes we wonder, we see our experience, we see what's going on, and we wonder, is God protecting me? But the promise of Scripture over and over is that he does indeed protect us. Look there at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And Paul answers his question with a question. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see the logic of what he is driving at? If God the Father has set his affections upon you because of your faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then his promise to you is to protect you with divine power. The Bible has quite a bit to say about power. Every believer, no matter how gifted or how mature, has human limitations and weaknesses. All of us. Our minds and bodies and perceptions are imperfect. Yet, incredibly, God uses us as channels of his redeeming and sustaining power when we serve him from an obedient heart. Scripture certainly testifies of God's power. In Exodus 15, 6, it speaks of God's glorious power. In Deuteronomy 32, it speaks of his irresistible power. 
in Job 5.9, it speaks of his unsearchable power. And in chapter 9, his mighty power. His great power in Psalm 79, his incomparable power in Psalm 89, his strong power in Psalm 89.13, his everlasting power in Isaiah 26, and his effectual power in Psalm 89. His everlasting power in Isaiah 26.4, his, his um, sovereign power in Romans 9.21. The prophet Jeremiah declared of God, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom. And in Jeremiah 10, 12, we read that through the prophet, God says, I have made the earth and the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm. The psalmist admonished us, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. His is the power that can save and not only save, but protect. If God be for us, Paul asked, who can be against us? So we do have an enemy. They come in all kinds of forms and disguises, and we come under attack in a world that's hostile to our faith, hostile to the Lord himself, hostile to God and to faith in God. And yet we're promised, if God is for us, who can be against us? Secondly, in these verses, in verse 32, we also learn that no thief can successfully rob us. Why? Because the grace of God upholds the believer. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And this idea of freely give us all things is Paul is, is arguing here. He's saying, listen, if God gave us the greatest of all. By the way, I thought about this this morning. My, now, my son Josh, he is uh, studying uh, music composition, and he studies all of these different um, composers down through history. And one of the things that's happening with Josh is that he will be listening to a modern-day um, composer like, uh, like John Williams or someone like that, uh, very famous, very good, and he will hear the influences of past composers on what is written today. And that's just from constantly saturating himself and learning about this music. And as he does, he begins to see the influence of past composers upon present-day uh, writers of music. And I was thinking about that and realized that's very much what Paul is doing here. When he says that he who did not spare his own son, I think... I wouldn't be overly dogmatic, but I think that the Apostle Paul knew his Old Testament quite well. 
And I think as he said those statements, it took him right back to Genesis chapter 22, where Abram was asked by God to take his son Isaac, remember, to a mountain and to prove his devotion and love for God that nothing, nothing would compete with God would he be willing to give up his son and sacrifice his own son to God to show God that he loved God supremely. And you remember that moving story and the struggle that Abram went through and he did take Isaac out. But God did not require him, did not require of him his son. Right at the last moment, you remember the scene where God stops him and keeps him from taking Isaac's life. Why? Because God himself would be the one who would not spare his own son, but would give him over for us all. I think that's what's happening here. Paul is bringing to bear Old Testament revelation to bring fullness to the richness of the cross and of what Christ did in bringing redemption and salvation to us. But a thief can, no thief can successfully rob us because the grace of God upholds the believer. In John 1.16, we read this, For of his fullness, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his fullness all we have received grace upon grace. And when you read that text and look at the tenses in which it's written, that idea is this, that Jesus Christ himself, being the fullness of deity in bodily form, being God himself in human form, that God from the right hand of the throne, that he has poured out on us grace, but not just a little bit of grace, the ideas of his fullness have all of us received grace upon grace upon grace, endless, limitless, boundless, eternal grace, constantly flowing to the believer in Christ. Aren't you grateful for the grace of God? It is truly amazing. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, but we mean it because that grace continues to flow to the believer every day of his life and will successfully bring us home. No thief can successfully rob us because the grace of God upholds us. Well, number three, in verse 33, we see that no accuser can successfully charge us. Why? Because the righteousness of God clothes the believer. Look there at verse 33. Here's another question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So here Paul raises this question. Who is going to successfully bring an accusation, bring a charge against you? Oh, if they were to, if some some shadowy figure in the unseen world pointed its long bony finger at you and began to elaborate on your failings and your faults and your sins, could they speak with truth concerning that? Well, of course they could. 
because Christ did not come for the righteous. He came to save sinners. He came to rescue the sick. And that's us. And he has. And so these accusations, if we allow them to penetrate and get hold of us, will debilitate us, discourage us, and bring us down. But but this idea here in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And the idea isn't that no charge could ever be brought that has any truth in it. It means no charge can be brought that will stick. No charge can be brought that will be successful in its intention. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. What does it mean that God justifies the one who believes in Jesus? Well, the the beginning of this book of Romans, we read in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. And when we come to chapter 3, verse 21, in Paul's argument in Romans, he says, but now, The righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? Well, it means that upon the cross, God imputed to Christ, put upon Christ, put on Christ's shoulders all of your sin and all of my sin. Though sinless himself, Our sin was imputed to him so that in dying for us on the cross and in in shedding his blood on that cross, Christ could shift all of his righteousness to us who believe. Some theologians call it the great exchange. Christ takes all our sinfulness and we receive all of his righteousness. So what does it mean? God declares the believer righteous. And by the way, I'm not just talking highfalutin stuff here. This is so serious. The whole reformation of the church with the pre-reformers and then Martin Luther and the great reformers that blazed the way and pioneered the the re- the, the recognition of what had been lost, the gospel of Christ and the power of that gospel, what, what this is talking about is a righteousness that we must understand. I'm going to try to see if I Let me break this down for a second. When you think of righteousness in your Bible, you could think of it in three ways. You could think of it in terms of practical Everyday righteousness. Well, what would practical everyday righteousness be? Well, it would be telling the truth when it would be easier to lie. It would be showing integrity and being honest in a situation that you could easily squeak out of. It is turning away from evil and pursuing that which is good. It's the everyday 
living out of a life that honors God. That's practical righteousness. Then there is also what we might call perfect righteousness, which none of us will enjoy in this life until we're home. And once we're home, we will be in a state of perfect righteousness, meaning we will be without sin forever. No sinful actions, no sinful attitudes, no sinful motives, no, no sinful words, no sin. And not just in your life, but all the inhabitants of glory will be without sin. Can you imagine how wondrous that's going to be? And I know you've heard me say this because I like to use my imagination. I like to think, okay, Tony, here you are. You're finally home. You've seen the glory of Christ at the right hand of God, and, and now God and the Father has embraced you, and, and you are perfected now and without sin in the righteousness of Christ. And now here you are, and God is opening up his great plans for eternity. And now after, say, 10,000 years in heaven's glory, beginning to see God open up to us the wondrous plans he has forever and ever. I will stop one day walking down one of those golden streets and I'll realize, oh goodness, for 10,000 years, I have not heard one cross syllable spoken to anyone. I have not looked into someone's eyes and watched them look away because I knew they were hiding something and lying to me. And I have not lied to them. There's no wickedness, no evil, no, no selfishness, no pride. There is perfect righteousness and joy and peace and the wonder of God's eternal plan for us. What would that be like? And that's just 10,000 years. We're hardly off the front doorstep of what God has planned for all eternity for his people. Righteousness, perfect righteousness. So we have practical righteousness and we have perfect righteousness. But what kind of righteousness is this talking about? When it says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. What does this mean? Well, for God to justify the believer, for God to justify the believer means that he, the judge of heaven and earth, declares you righteous. It's his declaration. In other words, it is forensic. It is judicial. It is a statement. His gavel has come down and he has proclaimed to all the universe, this child of mine who is in Christ my son, who believes in him, I declare this child righteous. That's what this is talking about. You know why? Because first of all, you'll never have perfect righteousness on earth until we get home. So that one's settled. In terms of practical righteousness, I don't know about your graph. If your Christian walk is like a graph, would you say that you got saved right here and it's just one straight, perfect ascending line? Is that the way your experience has been? No. It's like this, right? 
sometimes real dips and then back up. And that's it, right? So let me ask you this. If this kind of righteousness is talking about practical righteousness, then a charge can be brought against you. Are you thinking with me? I need you to think with me. If this is practical righteousness, then I guarantee you that the one who comes accusing and bringing charges, he'll win the day every time. It's not that kind of righteousness. It's the kind of righteousness that John Bunyan, remember John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, that, that beautiful saintly man of God, he, wasn't even, he didn't even have any formal education, did you know that? Next to the Bible, the Pilgrim's Progress has been translated and, and distributed more than any other book on planet Earth. Pilgrim's Progress. It is an absolute wealth and mine of spiritual understanding. John Bunyan was in a walk in the woods, and he came out of the woods to an open field. And as he was walking across the field, he was struggling a little bit with some of the failings in his life, some of his shortcomings. And he paused out in the middle of this field and began to pray. And as he prayed, he wrote this later in his journal. It was as though God spoke to me, not audibly, but spoke to me and flooded my mind with texts of scripture, just like the one we're looking at today. And basically he said this, you mustn't trouble yourself about positional righteousness. The reason is because of faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in Christ Jesus, my son, which means your righteousness is seated at the right hand of God. That's where our righteousness is. So let's think about Paul's argument. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And when God the Father looks at you, and wants to see righteousness, he just glances to his right. Because there seated with him in glory is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jehovah Sitkinu, the Lord our righteousness, is at the right hand of the Father. That is a reason to rejoice, is it not? That's why when we come to the table and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's because he has become our righteousness. So no enemy can successfully come against us because the power of God protects us. And no thief can successfully rob us because the grace of God, freely given and that overflows in a fullness that we can't understand constantly flowing to us is ours in Christ Jesus because we, we belong to him. And the accuser, no accuser can successfully charge us because we have been declared righteous in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And by the way, is there an accuser? Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 says that Satan himself 
and all of his helpers. He is the one who accuses, he is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. How did they overcome him? Well, the next verse there in Revelation 12 says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Why does he say they overcame them by the blood of the Lamb? Because that's where the great exchange took place. Our sin was placed upon him. His blood ran red under the judgment of God so that his righteousness might be positioned uh, in us and that we might be declared righteous in his sight. So what is it that silences the accuser? The gospel of the righteousness of God, the cross of Christ, the death of Christ on that cross for me and for us, the power of the cross to silence the accuser of the brethren. You might have come in this morning under accusation. Might have. You know, it's not that uncommon for a church family to gather and have several of us just had a tough week, fallen into sin, and it's unresolved, and we're still carrying it, and we're feeling a little ashamed and guilty of it, and so on. And so, coupled with our own failings, which we take responsibility for, is also the follow-up of the accusations of the enemy who seeks to paralyze you and debilitate you, discourage you, and bring you down. Overcoming, overcoming with the truth of the gospel. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No one successfully. Why? Because God is the one who justifies the believer in Christ. Amen? Yeah. I know this is basic, but we need reminded of these things from time to time, don't we? Well, quickly, number four. The last one is no judge can successfully condemn us. Why is that? Because the crucified, risen, and reigning one intercedes for the believer. Look at verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Not only charges, but carries out the condemnation. Who is it that condemns? And then Paul's answer, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised from the dead, who is now exalted and reigning at the right hand of the throne of God. And what's he doing there? He has you on his heart. He continues to intercede for you and for me. Is that possible? Is it possible that he would take interest in little bitty you? What about the other hundreds of millions of Christians that are upon the earth this very hour? Does he have the capacity to take interest in them too and to intercede for them? Well, if you're God, you do. If you're, if you're all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, you do. Right? 
Christ and his great heart. I wish sometimes that the Lord would allow me to hear. You know, uh, the other day I had an EKG done. It's kind of fun. They shave a little bit of the hair off your chest and they stick these things all over you. And it only takes about 30 seconds. I was all ready. You know, is this going to shock me or what am I going to feel? It was, a, it was a breeze. But what were they doing? Well, they were listening to my heartbeat and watching for any uh, malnormalities, uh, any, any strange things, any gurgles, any, any, any uh, ventricle sounds. They were listening for all these things, and of course it turned out fine. Don't you wish sometimes that you could hear the heartbeat of God? The heartbeat of God the Father in the infinite affection and love that he declares is true of his heart towards you. Don't you wish you could hear it? Because that's what the Word of God says. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he was to depart out of this world, John 13, 1 says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And the idea of loving them to the end is that he loved them to the utmost. And so my point is this. I like a lot of our new songs. I like a lot of our new choruses because they're very personally engaging and they're very subjective. But listen to me. When you think about the love of God for you, when you think about the great heart of God for you, don't leave it in generalities. Don't leave it in the, in the generalities and ambiguity of a, of a country western song that's warm and fuzzy. No, Paul never does that. When he talks about the love of God, he goes straight to a hill called Calvary. In history, in time, where Christ himself was crucified on that cross and gave himself to re redeem us. And what motivated him to do that? Well, we're not, we're not going to look at the rest of Romans 8, but the first question of Romans 8 verse 35 is, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And then, of course, it, you know how it ends. So this chapter begins with, There is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with, And there is therefore no separation from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. I think these are the kind of things that the Lord wants us to fill our minds with when we come to the table to take the bread and to take the cup. To be rich with meaning. Do this, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. Amen?